Hello and welcome to the Chinivision podcast, an irregular delve into the computers, software and users of years gone by. My name's Chinny Hill, and if you don't know who I am, I run a YouTube channel called Chinivision, where I cover, well, much of the same thing. Today's guest is Jason Robertson, aka the Teletext Archaeologist. He recovers pages from the old Teletext service by using VHS recordings and some very clever software. Jason has had a very computing history, including owning a Commodore 64, ZX81 and Amiga. So, how did he get the name, the Teletext Archaeologist? Mr Biffo from Digitizer gifted me that. Because I've been recovering Teletext, I was sending the, the Digitizer pages I'd recovered back to him. He hadn't got copies. Nobody's got copies, you know. So I started sending them back to him, and he, he, was, he was publishing them. So what was Teletext? It's kind of an electronic magazine that you get on your television in the old days. It was a hidden away at the top of the screen where you couldn't see it as digital data, and then you'd press the button on your remote, and up would pop all these hundreds of pages of digital magazine information like news, weather, travel pop charts, etc. That was in case the unlikely event that anybody under 40 was listening to this. Because <laughs> it has been a few years now. And of course, people do listen further afield as well. So they may not know you know what teletext was. So why bother recovering this stuff? Because somebody recorded it off air, did sampled it on their computer, because you can get capture cards for your computer and you could use those sort of save teletext pages as they were being broadcast. And somebody had done that for an evening from BBC2 teletext. And I just spent you know, an hour or so just leafing through this old teletext. I thought, that was brilliant. It's like, I, you know, I want to see I want to see some more now. And then when um, the means to recover it from videotape came along, it was like, right, well, we can get a whole load more of this. Because and, this is um, a new technique, right, relatively speaking, because I had a, I remember my first Matsui Nikam forehead VCR. And I remember, I thought, what would happen if you press, I'd tried this before, you press the teletext button on your standard, old-fashioned two-head VCR, nothing came up. you get jumble if you were lucky. And then I realised yeah. on this forehead machine, if you press Teletext, you were actually getting something. You weren't getting the whole pages, but there was something discernible there. And I was always told that, well, if you actually recorded with it SVHS, you would get the whole signal if you pressed the button. So how are you getting back that kind of partial signal? Well, it's, it's all to do with the resolution of the uh, of the tape really i mean v- standard vhs is, is quite low resolution and t- the teletext data is broadcast basically as a tv picture and if those little little dots of digital information get blurred then the teletext tv can't decode them so recording via vhs does blur this the picture a bit so it, normal broadcast tv is sharper than vhs the new technique, then what this does is it basically reads the data into a computer and processes it, sharpens it up, if you like, so that it can be read as a teletext data. It's not always perfect, but what it does do is that it reads, because teletext goes round and round and round and you get the same page every so often, it can take lots of examples of that page, combine them, and it can say, well, okay, Nine times out of ten, this particular character is an E, so it must be an E. And it can clean up the pages that way by, you know, integrating them. And you have a particular focus on Digitizer as well, Mr Biffo's old uh, Channel 4 magazine, page 470? 
Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the uh, I mean, I recover all of the pages, I save them all. I used to love reading Digitizer at the time. That was always you know, one of the things I'd go and read. It's really nice to reunite a person with that teletext, giving Mr. Biffo back his old Digitizer pages. That that's his work that no longer exists. It's, it's not there anymore. It's not so any fault of his own. It's it, it, because it was just part of the teletext series that wasn't saved. But he can. He's, he's got all that work back now. All that artwork. All that copy that he's written is now back with him. Right now, one of the sort of tasks I'm working on is somebody was looking for a bit of BBC Micro Teller software that their father had written, and he hadn't got a copy of it. But his dad had uploaded it to CFAX Teller software, and I've got a copy. So, oh, I, I- you know, I, I, can, I can reunite this person with his dad's old software that he doesn't have anymore. And, you know, he, he, there's, there's that piece of his father, I suppose, that he's now got that he didn't, didn't have before. So we talked a bit about teletext. When did your computing journey begin? I suppose it depends what you define to be a computer, really. I mean, we all had one of those uh, Pong clone games in the in the late 70s. In the mid-70s, we're all used to just sitting in front of television and watching what comes on. You, you can't... Um, there's no on-demand. You can't choose what you want to watch. Most people hadn't got video recorders. There's three channels, and you basically just have to sit and watch what was on. When these Pong games came out, you could you could plug that in. It was kind of like a fourth channel, if you like, on top of the other three, and you could you could play this game, and it was interactive, and you can play with a friend. Christmas '81, I think it was. I had um, an Atari VCS. And um, I think that's one of those things where I think my my dad wanted it really, but he just thought, let, let, you know, let, let's get Jason this um, Atari VCS. He'll, he'll love that. <laughs> I think but, that you know, happened a lot. Yeah, and that came with copy Space Invaders, and of course the VCS Space Invaders is a cracking game. It's a really good conversion. It's not really much. It's not much like the arcade version, but in its own right, it's a really good game. And so we had that at school. We used to have this bank scheme. The Halifax used to come in on a Tuesday and you'd go with your bank book and a pound and you'd pay in your, your pound every week you know, to introduce you to the idea of saving. After a time, about 50 quid in there, I think my mum said, why don't you spend your bank money on a ZX81? At the time, it was, it was all, you know, get your kids into computing. That's where the jobs are going to be and again. We all said, why don't you buy a ZX81 with this uh, money? And it was um, £45 from WH Smith's. Took it home and worked through that ZX81 ring-bound manual. ZX81 is, of course, a very limited machine if you're coding in it. So did you have things like a, a RAM expansion to, to make more out of it? Well, I wish, because the RAM expansions were about the same price as the computer again. So the drum expansions were about £50. So I never had one. It was always like, you know, I don't think I ever wrote a program that was bigger than 1K. But the games, for the most part, needed a 16K uh, RAM pack. And it's like, I couldn't afford one. It was like, I got this computer and it was £45 and like another £50 for, for a RAM pack. And it's not the most exciting thing in the world, is it a RAM pack? It's something you shove in the back of the computer and it's like, it gives you more memory. It's not as exciting as the computer. So I, I never got one. And how long yeah. did you have that ZX81 for? The next bit in my retro story, if you like, is um, it's got to be September 1983. So I've still got this ZX81. I've gone to a shop and picked up a, a flyer on the VIC-20. 
and you know I'd I'd go to bed of an evening and I'd read this flyer. It was it's got all screenshots on of all these Vic Twenty games. It's like wow, look at that! It's in color and it's got three K and. I mean, we, we used to have a, like a, a budget for a main Christmas present, if you like, and it was about £100 for this main Christmas present. It was like, because the VIC-20 was coming in at about 120 I think, at the time. So it's a little bit more, and it's, it's like I just dreamed of having this VIC-20, and like, you'd have the, the occasional conversation with your parents, and I'd love one of these, and I'd look at this, look what it can do. My dad said, if you sell your ZX81, we'll put that towards your Christmas money, and we'll get a Commodore 64 and you know, I thought I was going to explode. I was like, <laughs> "What?" It's like to go from a Vic Twenty to a, like a Commodore sixty four was just way out there because it was what was it at the time two nine nine I think at the time. And it's like it's just so. I'd never even dreamt that we'd be able to get a Commodore sixty four. Christmas Day nineteen eighty three, I opened this Commodore and spent all day on it. You know, and it was on the color TV downstairs to start with, and I got chucked out to the uh, black and white portable. <laughs> um, but at some point around top of the pops uh, such a big day. jump i mean I, I you try to explain to today people today or youngsters making me sound old that you could go from this black and white computer to a computer with you know, 64 times the memory with color comes to the cassette deck and this you know it's, it's not like going from a iphone I don't, whether, I don't know what the numbers are, but iPhone 4 to an iPhone 5. You know, to use a Clive Sinclair phrase, a quantum leap. Yeah, it was a massive, massive jump. I mean, it's just... I can't think of an analogy. You're right. I can't think of an analogy now between between the you know the, the different things. The, the, the gulf between those two machines is um, just incredible. I mean, I looked at the Spectrum for a bit because I used to subscribe to Personal Computing News I was looking at Oryx as well because Oryx had a uh, teletext mode. It's like, ooh, you know, that would be good. I mean, I knew the BBC Micro had a teletext mode, but nobody could afford a BBC because they were £400. Hugely expensive. No, nobody can afford those. And it's like, that's just, we'll never. But, but, you know, I wasn't even looking in, in that. I was looking at Vic 20s and I was looking at Spectrums and Oryx. And then my dad comes in with a curl ball and says, we'll, we'll get a Commodore 64. I don't know how we arrived at that. I didn't tell him. I didn't. I didn't say I would like a Commodore sixty four. What's the best computer we can possibly get? It's a Commodore sixty four. He came in with that on his own. I don't know where he got that from. <laughs> most but, I, find, I find most um, dads of that era usually got this information from their mate down the pub who knew a bit about computers. So yeah. I don't know how yours was, but that's how it worked out for me. Well, yeah. I mean, once uh, my dad brought a. TRS-80 manual home from the pub. They borrowed off somebody to let me have a look through. So I, mean, I remember reading this TRS-80 manual with all these basic commands in it and stuff. It's like, oh, you, know, you read that and learn. But it was Christmas Eve, 1993. I mean, my mother says, um, she was like, oh, we'll get, we'll get you a game to go with this Commodore. What, what sh- and I'm, I'm going up to Macclesfield. What, sh- what shall I get? I thought, I'll just, just get, a, get a Kong game. You know, Kong with the Angry Monkey and Mario and the, and the Girders. And she came back with the Crystals of Zong, which, which is an entirely different game. It's like a maze adventure game. You have to go and uh, you control this little fella, collect all these treasures, collect a sword and go and chase after the meanies that are in the room. Luckily, that was a really great game that I still play now. And where were you buying your software at this time? There was computer shows occasionally at the King's Hall in Stoke. 
used to, it was one of the we used to go down there and buy some cheaper ones. I remember once I had this um, copy of Staff of Carnath. It was the ultimate game. I couldn't get it to load on my uh, Commodore, and it's like, well, do you know what? Do you know what? Let's just fiddle with this uh, azimuth screw at the top of the cassette deck there. We'll see if we can get it to load. Can't be far off, you know. Just give that a bit of a tweak. Completely knackered my tape deck. It wouldn't <laughs> yeah. load or save anything. We had to take it to a uh, local computer shop to see the tape deck down there, and they ran it through an azimuth utility, and they sorted out the azimuth for me and that. And while we're in there, they, they got this uh, demo of Pit Stop 2 running, which is like a, a two-player simultaneous Formula 1 game. And it was like, it was brilliant. So I was playing this game while they were fixing the cassette deck. It's like, oh, this is great, Daddy. And he was like, I mean, I'd mean, said to him, listen, it's like, what if we can... Uh, he was trying to create a package with the shop. So like, can we uh, get that azimuth realignment plus the game for this much? He was trying to sort of barter with them, but he wouldn't have it. <laughs> but it was, it was, it's like so we weren't. I don't know. Even though we'd had spent uh, three hundred pounds on this computer, we hadn't really got the money for an awful lot of software. And not many, many people had Commodores in the early days. They had uh, Spectrums. Only the odd game came through. I think um, a copy of Manic Miner came through first, but that must have been eighty-four. So I guess you're having to rely on copied games. I ju- I just wouldn't have had them otherwise. It wasn't like we said, like, I'm going to pirate this game and not buy it on purpose. It's, I, it's just, um, I just didn't have the money. for It was as simple as that. It just wouldn't, it just would have had to have done without. Well, there was this other thing that, again, I talk about this a lot, that games today are universal. You can download them instantly onto your phone. You can get hold of anything. As long as they haven't turned the servers off, which is a different problem, you could get hold of anything currently released. Whereas back then your chances of actually getting hold of stuff, even if you had the money, were much slimmer. The idea that you could walk into a software shop and get the game you actually saw in the magazine, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that. No, exactly. I mean, if you couldn't get it, you couldn't get it. It was simple as that. It's not like there was any other option, really. If it wasn't in your local computer shops, I suppose you could buy it mail order. But then you'd need a, a visa card, wouldn't you? And that's what it gets too complicated then. If there's a problem with the game, how on earth do you get it sent back? You know, you've got to you've got to send it back by post, and it, will you even get a replacement? You know, it's, whereas if you if you've got a shop, you can walk up to the shop and you can just say swap us this tape. It's a bit dodgy. You had your Commodore sixty four for for how long? Three or four years, and then you upgraded to an Amiga or something else, or no? I managed to upgrade to a Commodore one two eight. All right. I remember the day the day we got our I got my uh, Commodore one two eight. It was a, a shop in town we got it from. Incredibly exciting. It's like, oh, look at this. It's got a Commodore 64 in it, and it's got CPM, and it's got this Commodore 128 mode with all these basic commands and a massive ROM and 128K RAM. It's like, wow, I can't wait to get my hands on that. And um, my dad said, you've got to help me flag the drive first before you can play <laughs> this <laughs> Commodore 128. So I'd spend all day lugging flags around before it even let me have a go on it. It's like, come on. <laughs> Was the first thing you typed on it go sixty four? Probably, <laughs> probably, yeah. I mean, the 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 couple of one two eight was a yeah, it's really it's a really capable machine. It's got a sprite editor built in it, into it. It's got a monitor built into it. I mean, that is quite handy actually for being able to break into some games because in Commodore One Two Eight mode, you could reset the machine, go into Commodore One Two Eight mode, couple of pokes, you could disable the auto start for games, and um, 
leap out back into basic and start poking around with them, changing the sprites and whatnot. I had an accelerator plus drive with it as well, and that thing never really worked. It kind of worked, but never really fully worked properly. I always had loading problems with it. It was terrible. But sometimes it worked. It was like, is it me? Am I doing something wrong? Because it works sometimes, so it obviously works. So when it's not working, it must be me. In retrospect, it was broken and should have gone back, but I, I couldn't convince myself enough that it was actually broken to actually go through the process of sending it back. I mean, how much exclusive 128K software was there for the C- C128? Not a lot. Now, in these days of the internet, there's a, there's a fair bit that was released uh, in the US. You know, there's quite a bit, really. This is a surprisingly amount, a surprising amount. But at the time, it was none. There was nothing to buy, nothing that really took advantage of it. And I guess going forward a few years, it was the same with the Amiga. Most people had, most programs run on the Amiga 500, even though there were more powerful machines. But most people had a 500, a stock Amiga 500, and um, the programs ran on that. You kind of need a, a clean break and com- completely new software in order to move on. So how long did you persist with the C128 and realised there wasn't much software? Um, I think I had that. I must have had that a couple of years. Sold that in um, 1987 to buy an Amiga 500. And again, that was, a, that was an enormous difference in performance again. I mean, I remember I was up um, in town with some friends we went into the local computer shop and I saw Psygnosis Menace running on that machine. I thought, look at those graphics. That's just incredible. I mean, it looks pretty basic now, but at the time it was like, wow, you know, this looks fantastic. I'm going to have to get one of these. You know, I sold the Commodore 128 and the disk drive. There was a, you know, a few hundred quid there. Put my Christmas money towards it, etc. Birthday money. Managed to uh, get the Amiga 500. It's a, it's a completely different machine again. I mean, the, the Commodores and the, the machines, the other machines in the 80s are keyboard and screen and you type in commands and it does stuff. With Amiga, it's a, it's a WIMP environment. You've got windows, you've got icons, you've got your mouse and you've got your pull-down menus. You've got all these things. It's like a completely different experience altogether, um, a Windows computer as opposed to one that's basically just a terminal, I suppose. There's this kind of jump from these machines that have a command interface when you turn them on. This machine that, well, actually does nothing when you turn it on rather than says insert disk and then you take it from there. I think I spent most time with the Amiga figuring out how to how to work it and configure it and get it going. And I thought I, I, that, that's the that was the most fun I had initially with it, is to just learn this new environment of uh, icons and drawers and pointers and how this complicated because you know it was complicated that machine. For the time, it was um, very advanced and very complicated. So I spent a lot of time configuring that, getting it to um, do various things in Amiga DOS and things. So that was kind of the programming I was doing initially with it. It is a very different environment to be going forward into, and I guess there's more use of applications at this time for you. Um, what did I do with it? I think you know what. I think I played a lot of games with it. Ah. <laughs> Skipping back to the, when's this, early 90s, um, when Amos came out. Because, I mean, we hadn't really, I hadn't really come across a, a good programming environment. It was like, now this is a development environment I can get along with because it, it, was, it was basic, 
really. It, it was basically, I was used to it, and we, we could program it in. You, you could control sprites and do graphics and do all these things. And, and it was like when, when Amos came out, it was a basic, really took advantage of the advanced features of the Amiga. Not like Amiga Basic, which was just text in a window. It was terrible. It didn't use the Amiga's graphics or sound at all. It was just awful. But um, Amos, you could control the sprites, you could control the sound, you could do all these amazing things with it. So, yeah, I mean, I did some programming with that. You know, I wrote a couple of basic games with that. And Amos Professional came out, and then Blitz Basic. I mean, Blitz Basic was great because that was more system friendly. So, you, you know, you could, um, I mean, by by this time, by sort of, you know, 93 maybe, the, the, the Amiga OS had matured a bit and it was a bit more robust and a bit more professional. And Blitz Basic reflected that because it, it coexisted with the Amiga OS rather than chucking it out the window, which is what Amos did. I mean, Amos just suddenly said, well, we're not going to bother with the Amiga OS. We're going to go straight in there and bang the metal directly. So I spent a lot of time with Blitz Basic um, as well in that time. But also I started to use Octomed as well, which is an audio, it's a tracker application. It came on a cover disc and, you know, I mean, I, I, mean, I play the drums, so I didn't have any musical ability before anybody says. So uh, with Octomed, it came on a cover desk, and it gave us a chance of messing about with music and being able to make your own music and write your own tunes. And it came with a few basic samples, and they were rubbish, but you, know, you, could, you, could, you could have a go, and you could, uh, you could basically have, it, you'd have a, a track with drums on, which was always the best track for me. Then the other bits with the other instruments, you could, you could, you could have a song that played, you could have a module that played, and it, and it, it sort of taught you, music programming if you like and so i mean i did did a lot with that so i'm guessing you're one of the people who kind of after i'd long since jumped the amiga life raft was still there clinging on whilst commodore sunk like the titanic yeah i mean uh, commodore went under in april 94 didn't they i mean i i think i not long since my had my uh, amiga 1200 i think i'd uh, save birthday money and christmas money again so I bought this uh, Amiga 1200, and then Commodore went bump. Okay, we, we, I mean, Commodore went bump in April. I think it was a, a, probably about a month or two before anybody found out because we, we never found out anything via magazines. And, of course, magazines have a bit of a lead time, don't they, where you, you know, you, there's probably a couple of months hence before you find out that Commodore's gone under. The Amiga was such a powerful platform that even though the parent company had gone bankrupt, it kept rolling on. For years afterwards, software companies were still supporting it because it's had such a massive installed user base. But you, so all these computer, all these companies were still supporting it, still putting games out, still putting utilities out. They were reducing over time, but they, they were still there. It got the Amiga got sold to various people who mistreated it. And um, when did I actually buy a PC? This has got to be late nineties. But I still, I still kept my that Amiga. By this time in this Amiga, I got a Power PC chip in it, graphics card. It was you know properly souped up. This Amiga twelve hundred was in a tower case. It had got a Blizzard uh, Power PC card in it because at the time it was going to be PPC was the next thing. Uh, we, we're going to have an all new Amiga OS running on Power PC chips. 
and that was the next thing so i'd got this card thinking yep here we go we're on to the next thing now it's going to be super fast pcs can eat my shorts and i'm just going to stick with the amiga because it's so you know brilliant i'm used to it and i really like the amiga and it's a fantastic platform to work with and this is the future i got this pc because um pc had real video with it and you couldn't get that on the amiga you couldn't watch you couldn't watch old tv clips on the amiga and that that was a that was a real bugbear of mine it was that uh, all these tv sites which had video that um had this proprietary video format not mpeg because i mean mpegs we could we could watch them on on amigas because they weren't proprietary but real video was proprietary and you couldn't get it on the amiga so that's why i bought a pc really for that but eventually you start using your PC more and more and more and more, and then the Amiga sort of falls off to the wayside a bit. But I always use that. I always still use it to play games, do the occasional thing, up into up into the 2000s. And I guess that's kind of where your coll- anyone's collection starts. The, the, the moment a machine doesn't get sold and, and doesn't go out the door, then unwittingly you become a computer collector. Certainly, in the mid to late 90s, me and my friend used to go around car boot sales. They were selling these old computers, you know, like Spectrums and stuff. You go to the car boot sales, and there they were. Somebody was selling a Spectrum, Kempson joystick interface, joystick, handful of games for a tenner. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, okay, brilliant. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll give you a tenner for this, and we can, you can go around. And you could, it, was, it was quite compulsive going around to all the car boot sales, and you can see well, what, what computers we're going to find today. You know, given unlimited money, you'd uh, I'd have liked um, a Lynx. Um, I always wanted a Lynx machine, an Enterprise, an Elan Enterprise, because they look good. Each of these computers, your, your Spectrum, your Commodore, Atari, your BBC, each of those platforms are their own little universes. They, they've got their own memory maps. They've got their own features. They've got their own ROMs. You can do different things with one that you can't do on another. There's effects that you can do on one machine that you can't do on another. They're all separate worlds that can be explored. So if you're, if you're a tinkerer um, or a programmer, there's, there's um, all sorts of things you can go and find out by working with these machines. It's like, oh, that's, that's similar to the Commodore, and that's not similar, and you can learn this, and you can do that, and you can explore all these different things. And each of them is their own new world, if you like. Back then, when you were picking machines up, we had no comprehension at all that suddenly there was any anyone other than a few people huddled together on Usenet in places like Compsys, Sinclair, and, and and so on. No comprehension, no support, or able to get cables or plug this stuff in to anything. And then suddenly, boom, here we are, where there is support. And it's... How do you think you would have reacted when you're walking around those car boot sales are suddenly being told you know what they get the band back together and you're going to be back in fashion again <laughs> yeah you know you know you're, you're just you're right there because you just buy these machines and you think they're dead machines nobody runs these anymore it's just me wanting to play a quick game of jetpack that you're so right i mean there's just thought it was just nobody's going to be interested in this i mean what happened what happened to me is i i I kind of uh, I started with the car boots in the late nineties, buying machines, etc., just to, the cheap ones I could find. You know, but, but things like uh, Atari Jaguars and all, you know, all sorts from these computer fairs. But then um, 
and then uh, I I moved I moved house in when was it two thousand and two two thousand and one, um, and I got so much stuff I'd accumulated from these car boots. So it had all gone up the loft because you think like you know I've got no room for this. I'll play with that later because you know, by this time you know I'm working full time. And it's one of those truisms in life, isn't it? It's like when you're a kid, you've got acres of time but no money. And then when you're an adult, you've got money to spend but no time. <laughs> so all this, all these computers that I bought from Carboots have gone in the loft. I'll play with them later. In 2012, we had a house fire, and I uh, basically lost all my computers, oh, nice. everything. It, it had all, they'd all gone into this massive amorphous black sooty mess all those machines that I'd nursed back to health with a soldering iron and by soldering in ram sockets and all that they'd all just you know just gone so the insurance goes through and you get the insurance money back and you think I'm sure it was worth more than this when they give you the insurance money but you know that insurance money I used to buy other stuff as well and that's where the, the max came from that really I mean if there's a positive side to anything I mean I lost all those machines the one that was worst was I'd lost my Atari VCS that my parents bought me oh. back because I still had that. It's like that was one thing that I'd still got, and that's it, and that had gone. And I suppose one positive thing that came from the insurance money, I suppose, is it cleared out all the tat that you'd bought over the years. <laughs> it was just rubbish, and you could replace it with the stuff you actually wanted. And uh, what's the that. one machine that you're looking out for? I would like a PET 2 machine that's got a... Uh, a Vic two chip in it. I think it's a is it a P P five hundred. I think it's called that has a Vic two in it, and it might it might have SID chips as well. But I would love one of those. But I mean, they are on obtainium as well. I mean, there's one on eBay now, but it's, it's three and a half grand, and it's like <laughs> you know, I'm not that rich. I mean, the the prices of the retro stuff now is just nuts. Oh yeah, it's absolutely insane. I mean, even after we had the house fire, the um, I was able to buy a lot of the stuff back. At a reasonable price compared to now, I thought, well, this is a bit expensive, including machines I've not had before, like the Max, like the Memotech MTX, like the Enterprise. So I bought all these machines as well that I never had with the money, so it's sort of consolidated, I suppose. Enterprises and MTX are, are pricey enough yeah, as it yeah. is. The idea of getting one in for the channel, but the budgets don't really kind of stretch no to that, dear, to that kind they? of thing. You've got to think about, yeah, okay, that's a video. But I'm not nostalgia nerd or someone where that can be justified. It's it's like, um, no, what am I going to do with it after that? And the answer is nothing. It's going to sit there. All of these things, when you're buying them, you're having to make judgments about what you're getting. And I guess we, you, know, you and I, were lucky to get stuff. Okay, you've lost a lot of stuff in a house fire, but even buying it back, it, we weren't faced with 80, 90 pounds for a Commodore 64, which is stupid. Yeah. Oh yeah, they were, they were about twenty quid when you know after the house fire. I mean, yeah. I picked up um, silver label Commodores. I mean, I bought. I think I must have bought. I bought about two or three of those because they were about forty or fifty quid, and even that was expensive. I thought, well, ooh, that's expensive at the time. Forty or fifty quid for a Commodore sixty four because it, it got a silver label. But there, I don't know what they are now, silver labels. But there was there was a time when they were about two hundred quid, and it was like, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I bought that one. I did. So I'm um, finally kind of what what does this hobby mean to you? Like I was saying, I mean, these computers, all these computers you know, sitting behind me, the, uh, what have we got, Tatung, Tatung Einstein, the Enterprise, the Sharp MZ711, 
the Sony hit bit, all you know, all these things. These, this is what I'm going to be doing when I retire. They are all coming down, and I'm having a go on them, a good <laughs> proper go, and I'm going to explore all those universes of the eight bits. Fantastic. And where can people find you online and Twitter uh, and so on? It's my teletech stuff that I'm that I'm noted for online, really, rather than the retro stuff. Um, but I'm on Twitter on at Grim underscore Fandango. And on the web, I'm on www.teletextarchaeologist.org. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much indeed. It's been great talking about the old days. Thanks to Jason and thank you for listening. If you enjoy this kind of thing, then please subscribe. And if you really like it, then also subscribe to the Chinivision YouTube channel. And uh, you could Google even Chinivision Patreon if you wish to support me produce more of these podcasts. See you soon.